This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Navy SEAL and Executive Director of Vogue, Ben Davis. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his early life in adventure sports, his journey into the military, his perspective on war, how his love for outdoor sports became the very therapy he needed from his transition, creating the Veteran Outdoor Advocacy Group to help other veterans experience outdoor sports and community, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ben Davis. Enjoy. Well, Ben, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a fan. I've been uh, following along for probably two years. So oh, really? It's a, it's a, yeah, thanks for having me. Beautiful. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I am in Golden, Colorado. Um, yeah, maybe 20 minutes west of Denver. So I'd love to start at the very beginning of your actual timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. 
Yes, I was born in uh, Winchester, Virginia, which is um, north central Virginia. And my father owned a apple orchard. Um, and my mother taught elementary school. Um, and then around the third grade, my dad decided to pursue a PhD in, um, in horticulture at Virginia Tech and got hired on, I think, as an adjunct faculty member. So we moved to Blacksburg, which is in southwest Virginia. Um, and that's where I grew up, basically, from there until uh, I left for undergrad. I have a sister who's younger than I am, four years younger than I am, and she lives in D.C. And, yeah, my mom is still in in early childhood education, and it was great. It was um, – it was it was fairly normal middle class upbringing, but it's, it's Blacksburg sort of a unique place in that um, almost everyone that lives there works for the university. So you have a you know a really tight um, group of um, you know income earners in the town. There's only you know everyone's employed at the same place. Everyone's sort of in the same. Um, circumstances when it comes to their home life and it was awesome the school at that time and i'm sure still attracted a ton of outdoor um motivated athletes you had you know mountain bikers that were winning in the world tour and winning national championships that were um going to school there a ton of really talented kayakers all kinds of stuff um in Blacksburg. So I was exposed to non ball sports pretty early. I mean, I was, I was sort of privy to the fact that you could, uh, you know, there was climbing and, um, you know, tons of cycling and all this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great place to grow up. It was a really good place to grow up. And then my, my father's brother, stepbrother was an alternate kayaker in the olympics in atlanta i think that was 1994 and so um i got really interested in kayaking early and uh the olympic training center was at the ACOE um in chattanooga tennessee so i decided to go to undergrad at the university of tennessee chattanooga because i thought it would be the best place to i could spend the most time kayaking basically um not you know academics and uh the caliber of education was not uh not at the top of the list relative to how many days a week i could kayak with ease so yeah that's um that's it as far as from from zero to adult i guess well with the town that you grew up in with everyone having the same employer Firstly, was there a kind of class system based on what they were teaching? And then secondly, what were the pros and cons of that kind of dynamic in that very unusual um, community that you were part of? Yeah, so um, not really. As far as the caste system, no, I don't I don't really recall. I mean, we we would know that some people's folks were, you know, like high, you know, assistant dean of this college or. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of different 
stature in terms of um, your employment at Virginia Tech, but not really. I mean, everyone's um, – I mean, I think it's pretty marginal relative to, like, you know, the difference between a um, what you'd find in a major city, you know, between the richest and the, the lowest earners and the highest earners. So, um, you know, I think the pros were sort of a unified – you know, there was sort of a collective trust by the parents when we were growing up that you could kind of roam um, in these other families and these other places that you would want, a kid would want to roam to were, looked just like home, you know, where I, I live in Denver now and, um, well, I live in Golden, but um, when, he, when I, we lived downtown for a little bit and it just isn't, I mean, I think there's just a lot more risk. I mean, you got um, from the wealthiest people to, you know, homelessness and, um, you know, there's a whole world out there. So in Blacksburg growing up, we would basically just run around from um, when you woke up to when you went to bed. And I don't I think because it was all sort of uh, economically uniform, it, that knocked a little bit of like, oh, what's my kid going to get into? Um, growing up. And then I guess the downside, you know, it's not diverse at all, really, um, in terms of socioeconomic. So I remember getting to Chattanooga and I mean, thinking just people were, you know, seeing for the first time, the completely, you know, a broad spectrum of um, different socioeconomic classes, um, cultural, I mean, everything. It just doesn't exist really in Blacksburg, um, which isn't good. I get, you know, just with some respect, it's not, um, I don't, I wouldn't encourage, I'm a parent now and I wouldn't, I don't hope that my daughters, you know, first run with a diverse society is once they're 18, but, you know, hopefully it yeah, turned out all right. <laughs> Well, you said about your dad owning an orchard too. Um, we are now in a culture where a lot of, a lot of especially younger people really don't even know what some of the vegetables and products in their food even look like. I grew up on a farm. We had an orchard on the farm. What was your exposure to the holistic side of nutrition when you were growing up? Well, so this would have been previous to the third grade. So I don't have a ton of memory of it. One memory I do have was the. Um, the damage that deer would do to the fruit. Um, and I remember my father and his partner trying to eliminate the threat of deer. Um, and my, my dad suggesting that I could go along and my, you know, that being a big point of contention and really, really wanting to go. Um, but these apples generally were um, produced into apple products. The apples you find on like uh, in the grocery store on the rack on, being only one of them. So you'd have like these apples would go to make apple juice and applesauce and apple pie and apple, every, anything you can think of. And they would be sold as apples alone. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't remember a whole lot. I mean, I remember a lot of conversation and dialogue around 
um, what we would eat. You know, my, we would have these kind of tomatoes or that. And then my dad would kind of go into this um, explanation of this is, and you know, well, this is also two types of cucumbers, but in reality, they're very different. I didn't really become interested in that kind of stuff until like I was an adult, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but um, I do sort of remember it. Um, but yeah, once he got to Virginia tech, he got into um, like non fruit bearing education, more um, plants and grass and forestry and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, he's still a wealth of knowledge. I mean, any, he'll come visit, you know, visit us and look at the grass and just, you know, say like, Oh, the nitrogen's not, you need this, you know, he can just look at the coloring or something or the, say, Oh, it's a little bit messed up, but, um, yeah, unfortunately I wish I had a more interesting story about, a organic eating or healthy eating as a young kid, but there isn't one really. Yeah, well, no problem. The other thing that I know you're exposed to in Colorado, but we have a lot, you know, all over the country is wildfires. Has he ever, with the forestry background, discussed that element? Um, yeah, he does. He does. And we, um, you know, there's a lot of work in um, insect damage, which contributes a lot to the fires here in Colorado. Um, you know, a lot of people think of the trees, you know, just if you think of a fire spreading left to right in each tree that stands becomes a blaze. But um, the impact and the, you know, like the, the velocity and intensity of the fire has a lot to do with what lays on the ground. So if the rate of um, if you have a beetle or some sort of species that's taken down pines, you know, even at a. 101% um, speed that would take place, you know, without this, if, if there's any sort of trees falling at an um, abnormally high rate, that, that area is going to be very, or, you know, highly, highly subject to fire. Um, so he lives in, uh, he teaches at West Virginia university. Now they don't have any fires. So I wouldn't say it's like a um, a thing, but it's a topic of conversation here all the time. I mean, it's, um, you know, just 30 minutes north is that big boulder fire. And then we'll have maybe twice a year, we'll have, uh, they call them like pre-evacuation warnings, which isn't evacuation, but it's sort of like you should think about if we ask you to evacuate in the next two hours where you're going to go and what you're going to bring and we maybe have one a year. It's been a, it's rained a lot this year relative to the years that uh, I've lived here, which is four. I think this has been the wettest, the most, most precipitation and the most snow. Um, so I know they've got some fires in Crested Butte and um, other places, Canada, obviously, but so far so good. August is really the, I think August and early September is really the, if you're going to get it, that's when it starts. So, well, speaking of the outdoors, you talked about mountain biking, kayaking. When I was younger, I'd play football, but I didn't have a football team, and I was really into the martial arts. And so there was an element of being the weirdo if you didn't play the sports that, quote-unquote, you know, men or boys are supposed to play. Did you have any element of that as you started finding some of these more extreme sports yourself? Uh, a little bit. I um, 
I was a wrestler in high school and it was really um, intense, you know, given, I think if you looked at all the wrestling programs in the country, in this part of the state was um, really involved. We have some of the best wrestlers and wrestling coaches and some of these young men start at age um, two and they wrestle all the way through college. And so I sort of got looped into that. And then I really wanted to pursue my um, outdoor sports. Uh, I, I started rock climbing and kayaking probably uh, in ninth grade, but I had to, um, I also wrestled all the way through and there was definitely days that I wanted to quit wrestling and, and thought like, Oh, I'll just pursue this. It's a little bit hard. You know, it's challenging as a high schooler, you know, first you don't get your license till you're 16. And then, you know, these, a lot of these things you need a partner, um, you know, to climb, you need two people. It's just not really, I don't think it's super common that two high schoolers, you know, own all the climbing gear and their parents are going to let them drive out to this cliff and whatnot. Um, and so even if you're into it, it you, you know, you need to have a, well, it's, you know, super helpful if your parents are into it or someone in your family that could take you. Um, yeah, I remember like trying to fix up this bike that was like $400 and like converted into a mountain bike and stuff. I mean, it, it's just challenging, I think. Um, but as far as like social pressure, no. I mean, I, I, I remember my parents really wanted me to stay involved with wrestling because you had to get uh, you had to have a C average to stay on the team. And that's. Um, that was like the minimum that I was willing to put forth and. Um, it was structured and it was, you know, the coaches were really hard on the guys in terms of grades and being on time and being disciplined and eating healthy. And um, they knew, you know, aside from the physical, you know, endurance, you know, the cardiovascular and the strength aspect, this, this is probably better than what Ben's going to get into on his own. Um, if he, you know, told us he's going to just kayak every day. Um, which is what I ultimately did in college. You know, it was like just got away and uh, kayaked way more than I should have. Well, what were you dreaming of career aspirations wise when you were in high school and college? Um, that's a that's you know sort of fundamental to my story. I think I I didn't I didn't have any, and I was a little bit um, you know I was looking around at, at people who did and I thought that maybe something was um off or I was a little bit confused as to all these other people that wanted to who could really put their finger on like when I grow up I'm gonna be a um X, Y, or Z. I mean some things like a firefighter, an astronaut or you know these kind of like um I wouldn't call them cliche, but sort of un you know common aspirations i was like oh yeah that sounds fun i, I mean I, I would do that and um but when i got to undergrad you know people said like oh i really want to work in um banking or you know oh i'm my roommate graduated last year and he got a job in insurance and i'm going to try to do that and i remember being concerned like why have i i don't care i don't that sounds so so bad um I don't want to do any of that. Um, and then as college went on, it got more and more stressful because the question is more and more uh, 
relevant, you know, to it's, it's no longer like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, what do you want to, what are you going to do in uh, 24 months or, or uh, 18 months? So I studied political science, I think, because I, um, I was sort of like a history, really like a history interested person, which I still am, you know, I love uh, reading books about wars and you know, debates and shifts in the political climate 80 years ago and stuff like that. And so it just sort of seemed like political science. I would have to learn about um, all this history stuff. But even that, I mean, you could have, someone could have convinced me to study something else in like five minutes. I had no, I was basically just in college because it was um, the norm and it was an, an expectation of my friends and my parents really. And it didn't, it was a good deal. I mean, I got to kayak all the time and like drink beer. And uh, I mean, it's, it seemed like a small price to pay for uh, like having to go to class was like a small price to pay for, you know, the rest of uh, things that people do in college. So. So when did this shift become um, to join the military? When was that shift? So I was out here I, 2008, I think the summer 2008, and I dislocated my shoulder kayaking here in Colorado. Um, and it, it was sort of a, it was a major pain in the ass. I had a couple dislocations and then um, I had to get surgery. It was like, you know, you don't need surgery this week, but you need, uh, you're never going to be, you're never going to be going where you want to go or kayaking at the level you want to kayak, you're basically just going to have repetitive dislocations on. And so I decided to have the surgery and I um, was recovering from that. And the orthopedist was basically like, we got to this point where he said, well, you know, you don't have to be dormant. You can run if you want or find an exercise bike or, hike on the stairmaster or anything really you just can't use your arm and you certainly can't kayak so i was maintaining a relationship with the um folks at the naval academy who had gone to my high school and they had gone on to play you know to, to participate in in college athletics at uh, navy and i you know i sort of thought you know, these guys at first, you know, when they first, when I first got to undergrad and they first got to undergrad, I, you know, it was like, I had the upper hand. I had all the freedom. I could do whatever I want. And then these guys were like, you know, in boot camp style freshmen, you know, they don't have any privileges whatsoever. And so um, as, as school went on, it seemed like the table started to turn where it was kind of like, okay, well, these guys have a ton of direction. They're, driven they're you know they're healthy in shape they kind of have a a clear path on where they're going um and i was like not going to graduate in under in four years i had a broken arm i couldn't kayak anymore and i was like man i um maybe i should have done that whole naval academy thing and at this time the war in Afghanistan and Iraq was, you know, sort of, um, it was on the news every day, obviously it was 2007, 2008. And so it was the height of the war and sort of this 
premise or this strategy that uh, we could do, maybe we could be more effective and reduce casualties on the U.S. side with uh, more specialized small units was getting a ton of popularity. So I knew what a SEAL was and I knew, you know, probably since I was a little kid what it was, but it, it was really starting to, these guys were just really starting to be in the news and everything. And so um, these buddies at the Academy were like, man, it's, it's not too late. We're going to go and try to become these Navy SEALs and you can do it too. You don't have to have gone to the Naval Academy. And um, yeah, I thought it was crazy. I mean, I was having to tell, I was like kind of lightly breaking it to my parents. Like, yeah, I'm not going to graduate um, on time and all of this. And um, so anyway, all this lines up same time. The orthopedist is like, you can do anything you want, but kayak. And I got, so I was so tired of being on the couch that I got really into running and I started doing uh, marathons and that turned into triathlons. And then simultaneously I'm, you know, reading all these uh, books, every book I can on how to become a Navy SEAL and all, and what it is and all of this stuff. Um, so that you can see where, where, where this story goes, but eventually I just dropped out and joined the Navy. So a question that I always like to ask people who were deployed into combat, and the reason I ask this question is back home, I would argue people get a very polarized view on war. It's either the very pro-war stacking bodies that God sort them out, the very anti-war, they're all baby killers, and in the middle are the men and women, arguably children, that we send off to fight with our flag on their shoulder. So first part of the question regardless of the politics that sent you to where you were deployed, was there a moment where in that land you realized maybe, you know, atrocities or whatever was going on, that there were some some horrific people that did need to be taken care of? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the, you know, the, one of the privileges, I think, that special operations and, and um, units like SEALs and Green Berets and Rangers and all this, this stuff are afforded is that they, the leadership applies them where, um, where they're needed, obviously, but I think more frequently than in other units, um, it's where the bad is taking place. And so a lot of the stuff, fortunately for myself, um, you know, I was sort of, I was sort of relieved of this burden of um, moral moral struggle, which I know other other veterans um, deal with, you know, quite frequently, if not all the time. And I know that that's, you know, as you move away from combat, you, you know, days, weeks, months, years later, that's always can play a role, you know, is the, what was the purpose that we were there and what was the, um, you know, was it morally just? And I would I would never say that special operators don't have to deal with that question at all, but um, I think disproportionately to conventional forces, we're, you know, we're assigned to things that um, is pretty, pretty black and white. Um, or else you just wouldn't, it just wouldn't come across your scope of work really. Now that's not to say, you know, there's, 
really bad, um, some, some intense evil that's taking place here. And when you get there, there's some more ambiguous or gray situations that have to be navigated on the sides. Of course that happens, but generally speaking, um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We saw some, what I would consider a true, true evil. I mean, that's even, you know, to the point of can open up some spiritual navigation as to why that amount of evil, you know, would even exist or how, how someone could get so derailed um, in their upbringing or in their circumstances to where that would be, you know, they would find themselves in that position in life. Is that answer your is that answer No, your it, no it does. Yeah. Everyone has a different answer. And that's, yeah, that, that's exactly it. I think, I think, you know, people understanding that, you know, as you said, there are different people with different perspectives that say a good example post iraq there was no wmds and they question you know why are we there and but then there's obviously the good that they did while they stood on the ground that there were some extremists there um and so it's kind of you know telling telling the whole story the other side of that that we also don't get really in the press is the kindness and compassion that comes out of these these combat zones and you know we we tar an entire nation with a brush i would argue we're doing it right now with china with russia you know we're at war with insert country x when actually most people in most countries are good people trying to get on with their day and there's some extremists or some you know fascists or tyrants that are you know making their lives miserable so what about kindness and compassion whether it was our allies the people in in the countries or the people that you are serving next to oh yeah um i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree much I, I remember i remember before i deployed you know you hear um stories passed down from your colleagues you know that went before you and it's sort of um you sort of get this picture like you're going to land on this plane and when you get off the plane or the helicopter, like you'll be in a, like a war, you know, there'll be a, uh, you know, people shooting at you and you'll be, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, sort of like a video game type scenario. And then, um, yeah, you get, you get there and there's tons of monotony and tons of um, everyday human activities going on people looking to get food for their kids and water and uh run a business and sell shoes and you know it's not um you know this is just my experience obviously if you were in fallujah at the right in the right years that's not the case but in my experience um yeah even in 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 the places where the you know the heart of in the eye of the storm of evil um, I think there's some really human, you know, compassion and, um, the, you know, the, the drive for, a, a parents to parent and, and look after their, their children, um, you know, by any means necessary and protect them and feed them and, um, that's going on everywhere I ever went, that was going on. And it was going on um, much more of the days than the bullets were flying for sure. Um, but, you know, I think the U S foreign policy strategy and those with um, 
especially those that, you know, the programs and the the deployments that where they want to involve SEALs are are in places where, you know, you have a, a, a sizable country, community, society, um, religious group, you name it, that is being, you know, their freedoms or their livelihoods are being um, threatened by a smaller group. You know, for example, we wouldn't... Um, trying to think of a good example but now in 2023 i guess with all the lessons learned i think we like to think we don't just go find places that we don't agree with the um you know everyone in the everyone in this country is loves being there and everyone's happy but we don't and so we just go in it's usually a place where the majority is being threatened by a very violent minority um and so yeah, it wasn't uncommon at all to find um, anything, weddings, birthday parties, um, religious ceremonies. I mean, just tons and tons of really great, you know, the, the, the best of the human experience, you know, with a couple miles down the street from from the worst. Um, but yeah, that kind of stuff is interesting to think about. Well, you talked earlier about being passionate about history and political science i've asked a few people this recently because it still baffles me and you know when there's this push to maybe sweep a lot of our history under the rug because we're ashamed of it whatever it is that seems to only make the problem worse and one would argue well it could even be a deliberate attempt but when you look at history over and over again there's a as you said a small group of tyrannical, greedy, hateful individuals that seem to oppress the masses. And you can apply this everywhere from World War II to, to slavery. I mean, you name it. There's this, you know, this facade, as I said, painting everyone with the brush. Like, for example, all white people benefit from slavery. Well, if you actually understand history, that's not the case. And there's a lot of people that were extremely poor while slavery was going on. So, why is it as a species that we keep allowing this to happen over and over again when by numbers we have the ability to actually snuff out these people before they get too powerful? You know, I don't um I don't have the answer. I think one one recurring theme that I see there is power vacuums or absence of um stability often you know is going to often you know that inspires competition and competition for control of people usually gets pretty violent um you know if you look at germany after world war one if you look at you know if we look at the war in iraq where we, you know we sort of have the end of Saddam, and then we have a long, long reign of sort of U.S. occupation, and then that ramps down, and then in, into a absence of power, and then we see uh, Islamic State, Iraq and Syria, or uh, ISIS stands up. You know, countries like Somalia are really devoid of any anything, um, and so. 
while I don't know have the answer to your question, I think if you if you wanted to be preemptive and you wanted to be proactive, I think uh, addressing or identifying places where control or stability or um, rule of law is very ambiguous and not clearly defined or is being being just you know fought out between three or four different groups um i mean those are definitely the places that this is going to happen and these are the places that um we end up sending troops to and trying to you know put out some some war i mean that you know the where where i think you'll get in trouble with that obviously is like you know you know know that we're really welcome there you know or um or do we just become another competitor for for control um, amongst the other two or three? And is that any better or worse? And well, I think we've learned in the last two decades is like the exit, the entry, and the initial grab is very easy. It's doable. Um, the exit is where you know what takes real leadership real strategy and all this stuff and it's not been easy at all you know i don't even know if i'm trying to think of some examples that um where it's been done i mean there's plenty of examples where it's not been done or not been done very well but um yeah so i think you got to have a you've got to have a really clear transition plan um and if the answer is that there's no transition plan or it's not possible, I think you you're in for a, you're in for a long ride, and it's going to cost cost a lot of lives probably. Well, I think even domestically, just observing, because I mean, I I don't hail from any political party personally, because I'm still waiting for a good human being to show up as a leader, regardless of the color of their tie. But watching the division, I think, you know, the, the pandemic really showed how easily people are divided, whatever their beliefs. I think there were a lot of good people in the middle, but there was a lot of people that were forced into one trench or the other friendships, you know, families torn apart. Um, and, you know, when you paint the boogeyman as the other guys, now you're breaking down a country. And now the more fragmented we are, the more the, the less able we are to communicate with each other and stop oppression yeah and I, you know i would say the last two people that we've had in the white house personally james gearing opinion are fucking awful and we keep hearing the same thing choosing from the lesser of two evils well out of 350 million people that's a disgrace yeah. so to me if we're not careful our country's going to head down that road if we don't open up our eyes change the system and actually select good human beings to to be at the helm you know so that we can be that beacon of light for other countries I couldn't agree more. I mean, the talent that exists in this country is, uh, it's amazing. I mean, the, all the, every day almost you come read an article or listen to a podcast or, you know, it's like, golly, these people are, it's, it's humbling. Um, and then when you look at, you know, the next race, you know, who do we have lined up? It's, uh, it's grim or, you know, it seems like every cycle there is, you know, a, promising person who you sort of show interest in and then there's some sort of 
logistical is not the right word, but there's some sort of nuanced way that the system works that'll, it just isn't practical for that person to, um, to make it. So yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. I couldn't agree more the way it just, people get so binary, you know, all the time. It's like, we're going to get every um, topic or person or even, um, you know, newspaper podcast is a very binary, like, Oh, this is a, is this of our team or is this of the other team? And if it's, if we decide it's of the other team, you know, it just be, you know, it might as well be the, it's like, if you assimilate with it, now you've, we're going to just pair you with the other uh, things that that team assimilates with. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, how do we get, how do we get from like, I like this movie to now I'm a, uh, you know, you fill in the blank. Um, you know, and it's people don't, I think nuance requires like a, a lot of brain, you know, it requires like 10 X brain space that a black and white binary uh, judgment takes, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you need, you need the capacity to think. And when you're being bombarded with professional sports and, you know, social media and all the white noise that we have. I mean, you can't even sit in a, in a restaurant anymore without thousand yeah. TVs being in your peripheral and that's keeping you busy. And I don't think it's people again, waking up, deciding how they're going to fragment the U S but I think we've just devolved. And if we're not careful and don't catch ourselves, you know, as, as I had a Bedris Cooley on a few years ago and he was like, one of the saddest things is that people know the stats of all their favorite football players, but they don't even know their own body composition. Yeah, I was like, that's a great analogy. You know, we just know about other people rather than actually looking in our own home and figuring out how we can improve that first step oh, outside our front door and then affect our community. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Totally. I, I could probably do uh, do more of that myself. Yeah, I think we all could. Um, well, I want to walk through your transition, but just before you, we do... You, we're going to talk obviously about you know veterans mental health and, and what you're doing now when you look back whether it was pre-military whether it was during military did you have any of your own struggles i did i did um about 18 months post transition i had um you know we start back in the service i think i kind of came in on the heels of some really um the SEAL teams have been really well employed and had really done a lot um, in the decade before I got there. And they, they, um, in the decade that I was in the SEAL teams, we, they did a lot too, and they still do a lot. But, um, you know, the, my sort of mentors and whatnot had been in uh, repetitive back-to-back Iraq, Afghanistan deployment. And um, each one, maybe not everyone, but more likely than not, you know, not everyone came home from those deployments and um, there was a lot of loss and and a lot of hardship and whatnot. And um, mental health issues and, you know, the conversation around mental health um, was starting to open up and broaden, become more popular um, in the middle of my career. And there was sort of a, 
at this time, being a young guy, there was sort of a understanding or sort of like an unspoken um, message that I subscribed to that was sort of like, well, even if you have these uh, thoughts or emotions or feelings, you know, they're let's compare to some of these other guys, they must have 10 X, you know, because they did more They're they're, um, they're likely feeling more. And I don't really, I think a lot of my generation and, uh, and those guys didn't really feel entitled to, you know, a lot of mental health navigation. I, I know I certainly didn't. Um, and I had, I had a pretty significant, um, head injury about two years before I got out. And so I didn't, um, I sort of dealt with that like in real time. And I was, I was in the hospital for a couple of days and then I was, you know, sort of in that post concussion fog for maybe two months and then life went on and whatnot. And, um, anyway, I got out of the military and moved here to Denver and I was really, really focused on, uh, you know, my vocational transition. I had, a I had a, a daughter and I'm married and, um, you know, I just thought like, I really need to get my family here and become a civilian with a stable paycheck and get a house and, um, I'll be fine. I mean, that's what the last thing you want to do is like have to get back in the Navy because you can't find a job and you're kind of, you know, and that's, that's not unheard of. And so I remember being just, you know, I was probably, when I thought about leaving the military, I thought, you know, 99% of my um, bandwidth was focused on like vocational transition and income. And that went well. I did, uh, you know, not to, um, you know, I, I transitioned fine. I got a good job and I, um, all of that went well. And then around the 18 month mark, I think some of the, you know, some of the non work stuff started to catch up to me a little bit. I had, um, you know, I was, I was, I identified as a seal, I guess for 10, 10 years. Um, not, I guess, I mean, I did. And when I got out, I kind of still did. I mean, people would introduce me as like, Hey, this is Ben. He was a seal. Um, and I was just, you know, it wasn't, time to shed that and then eventually it sort of dawns on you that it is it's like you haven't been in the military for a long time and uh you're not a seal <laughs> anymore and i was really trying to fill that up with uh, backcountry skiing and, and bike racing um and my wife was pregnant with our second daughter and it just it all kind of came to head i didn't you know i, I wasn't going to be able to replace the endorphin rush and the adrenaline and the you just can't replace being a seal with anything in the civilian world and trying to do it with sports is uh you know, i think healthy in healthy at the right dose but the dose i was doing it was um not and covid the heat of COVID really put, you know, a lot of stuff got canceled and I was home all the time working from home. Um, and yeah, I think 
all of this is in retrospect, but at the time it just was like, man, I don't know who I am really. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm really apathetic towards my job. I don't really, I've been lying to myself that I care. I do care about my job. I do, uh, I'm feel lucky to have it, but the content of it, you know, the actual subject matter, I was like, Oh yeah, I am into this. And then it's, you know, I think you, um, you know, come to the point where you're like, am I? Um, and so, yeah, so I got, you know, I talked to a lot of people that are, you know, were really generous with their time and got some help. And, um, yeah, I mean, nothing, it just, it realized, I just realized it was time to, um, build and invest in, the new what the post-military me was and not worry about um becoming the equivalent of a navy seal in the civilian world with skiing or whatever the case may be and it's just to say hey i'm not that and i have i'm only 33 years old there's a lot more years to go and you better you know, you can either look in the rear view and, um, or you could try to build the best life for the next, you know, the best life, the best career, the best, whatever going forward. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like I realized that on a Wednesday and it was like, oh, okay. I mean, it, it's, it's still hard, but now that I just have a sort of have it framed and I'm sort of aware of the, um, the dynamics and I've talked to other guys who have similar um, experiences. It, it's helpful when all this kind of happened. I didn't even really, I, I didn't even really, I was just kind of like, man, I'm not really happy and I don't really care that much about any of the stuff I'm doing. That was kind of long winded, but no, it was, that was good. And it's the transition and the identity piece and the loss of tribe and the loss of purpose. I mean, these are all, important parts of the conversation i heard you on the um choose the hard choose the hard way podcast um and you touched on something with the host and and i want to kind of circle back with you you were talking about chasing you know that next thing the the, the little bit more extreme a little bit further a little bit higher whatever the event was and it's something i've saw in myself it's something i've seen in a lot of my peers in the fire service too um and you know the military friends that i've i've begun to you know accumulate as it were the irony is 10 years in the seal teams you know 15 20 years as a firefighter we are so beat up by that point that i've kind of turned a corner myself at 49 now where it's gone from you know trying to squeak out as high a performance as i can to just simply fixing some things taking the time to address muscle imbalances and you know do the things that you're already, I mean, you were a Navy SEAL, you're a firefighter, you're a police officer. If you took your training seriously, then you're already at an incredible place. And rather than chasing the next shiny object, the carrot on the stick until you're broken, taking that pause and just enjoying sports, but not trying to be the best at everything, but actually investing in your body and your sleep and nutrition and your mobility and everything else. So that when you wake up, you feel awesome instead of a bag of shit. But you know, a gold, you know, award-winning bag of shit. Yeah. 
yeah this is a this is a this is something i think about every, almost every day now is like because you know there's a balance there's a there's a place where this line crosses into unhealthy um and it's not always unhealthy there is value in that voice that says i can do better and uh i could create i can establish this goal and in, in the in order to achieve the goal there'll have to be some changes within me and those changes will be beneficial and they'll be good and i'll have to work hard um i mean that voice has gotten me where i am in life today not just in sports or in the military but in school and all kinds of stuff i don't think you want to eliminate that completely um you know, when the alarm goes off at five o'clock in the morning, you have to have that voice, really. If you just lay there and thought like, well, I'm fine. I'm a fine person and I'm a, I'm as, you know, whatever. I mean, I would just lay there all day. I don't, you know, you don't, I don't think speaking for myself, like I want that. I think where you, where I got off the rails and where I see a lot of people like in endurance sport is this like, um, I will affirm myself as a competent or a good or a great or a um, respectable athlete, you know, academic seal, whatever the case may be when I get to that, when I cross this next finish line. And um, even though they've shown themselves that after they've done, they've participated in that cycle 10 times, they still don't. Um, and so that for me, I think contributed to a lot of the issues that I was having. I think I started to, um, I started to, understand that once I get to the top of this mountain, I'll just have to pick another one. Um, and that's sort of depressing when you've been living in a world where like climbing to the top of the mountain is what keeps you going. Um, and so now what I've tried to do is, um, give the element of of joy and and blissful enjoyment fun a little bit more respect and um if something's so hard and so grueling i i i understand how people think that's fun i i have done stuff like that in my life and i admit that it's fun i don't really know how or the psychology behind wearing yourself out for 30 hours other than calling it fun, but, um, I get it. But if it's all of that and it's no blissful joy, I think you really need to ask yourself, am I doing this? Am I doing this because I need to prove to myself that I can do it or prove to other people that I can do it or prove to my Instagram followers that I can do it? Or is it really something that I want to do? Um, and that I'll enjoy doing. And if it's both of those things, that that's great. That's, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing hard things. Um, 
But if it's all hard and it's not, you can't look in the mirror and honestly say this will be fun or, um, you know, it'll be, it'll put a smile on my face. Then it, I think then you need to ask the question like, well, is it, is this just a proving opportunity? Because you can't prove, you can't, you'll just want to do it again. I mean, you'll just, um, once you, yeah, maybe you'll prove it and you'll post it on your Instagram or all your friends will acknowledge how fast you got to the top of this mountain or skied this one mountain. But after a week of that, it'll wear off and you'll be looking for that uh, feeling again, I think. There's a great documentary, The Weight of Gold, and it's a lot of the the most elite American athletes uh-huh. talking about, you know, standing on the Olympic podium, best yeah. in the entire planet. And then a few minutes later, they're like, that's it. Yeah. It's done. You know, and yeah. I think that's the thing is like, if you want to be the best at a thing, and that is your singular focus, and like you said, you're enjoying the journey, that's a different conversation. But I've watched just perfect example, my son, I've watched him he runs for his school. He does well academically. Um, he is in the JROTC program. You know, he's got a friend group. And that, I just told him today, like, that is so much more important than being that wrestler since you were two years old, to me personally, as a parent. Yeah, like, the fact that you're good at a lot of things far outweighs being the best at one singular thing because that does set you up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot of risk, you know, like, if you break your legs or something, your, your whole ego and your whole, you know, you're going to be really crushed if you're consumed by one singular, um, physical, physical thing. So it's all been a learning process for me, man. It's been not all of this is stuff that I've thought about, you know, within the last two or three years before I didn't, you know, it wouldn't even cross my mind to just whatever. Yeah. Whatever. It is. It's, a, it's an evolution, though. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you mentioned transitions, so let's get to Vogue. Um, tell me, obviously, it's not the Madonna Vogue, so you know, tell me yeah. the, the title and then the yeah. genesis of the story. Yeah, so it's Veterans Outdoor Adv- Advocacy Group, not like Vogue the magazine, V-O-A-G. And Vogue is a 501c3 and a c4 focused on advocating for the use of outdoor recreation therapy for vets, you know, specifically uh, via the VA hospital. So, you know, perfect end state for us would be a veteran is seeing a care provider at the VA or even in town and uh, on VA coverage, and they are navigating their mental health. And um, in addition to pharmaceuticals and, what currently exists at this care provider's, uh, you know, list of available treatments would be funding and access to outdoor recreation. So this, this young man or woman could get, um, participate in, you name it, fly fishing, hunting, skiing, running, paddleboarding, kayaking, cycling, anything, um, and have that be part of their, their covered care. Um, this is an idea that started in uh, around 2017 
some legislation was put forth and the nonprofit was basically built um, around that to, to drive it and be sort of the leading voice for pushing it through. Previous to that, we did outdoor recreation therapy as a facilitator, just as a, you know, people, people believe in it. They donate money and we take veterans um, outside Fortunately, that's, there's an abundance of players in that space today. We have tons and tons of, I mean, if you Googled like veteran fly fishing or elk hunt or something like that, you probably come up with 30, 30 different organizations. Um, so we've tried to really focus on the, the advocacy part and um, pushing the conversation in DC in 2020, a, the compact act was passed, which uh, basically assigned the VA to hold a 24 month task force and study the efficacy of outdoor recreation therapy and come up with some recommendations for delivery. And, um, you know, not unlike what a task force is tasked to do with anything like this in healthcare, but we Vogue is on the task force and we meet every 60 days and yeah, there's folks from with, you know, psychology, psychiatry, uh, the national parks, health and human services, nonprofits like ourselves, VSOs, um, all kinds of team red, white, and blue disabled veterans of America, all kinds of great folks who have a vested interest in, um, broadening the list of um, prescribable treatments for veteran mental health. So it's going really well. It's going really, really well. I think uh, we're sort of down into the how. I think the why has generally been endorsed. And now sort of the how, how are we going to ensure that quality exists? How are we going to ensure that there's no fraud and that um, there's safety and all of this stuff. And so hopefully, you know, our, our dream is that, you know, first and foremost is that the list of um, treatments that are available is, is just broadened, diversified. It doesn't have to be outdoor recreation. I mean, if it was extended to our yoga psychedelics, fly fishing. Um, I think any, any expansion of what currently exists is a win. We just, you know, we've, we've been witness to the benefits of the outdoors. And so that's sort of our main, um, drive and focus, but it's, you know, I think it's a time, I think we're sort of not only in a time of mental health reckoning where more people than ever are sort of, uh, having that conversation with themselves, but I think the um, the the methods at which we uh, navigate our mental health and the ways we uh, the different ways that we approach mental health is as diverse as ever. I mean, I think that the the door is definitely open for. Hey, this is a this group, this community of Iraq veterans participates in X. 
and it's really helping. And I think the medical community is, is uh, willing to listen and, and validate that those, you know, testimonies um, where decades ago, or maybe even a decade ago, I mean, I think it was a lot more scrutinized, like you might see in oncology or something where you have a hypothesis, you test it, you know, if we, can we see this in a lab or, a, you know, randomized control trials, yes or no. And then whatever, you know, I think there's a lot more like, Hey, we're, I started, I took up backpacking or I took up uh, this sport and I feel a lot better. Um, you know, obviously there's some physiological change and probably some physiological um stuff with all you know with an exposure to the outdoors and all that stuff too which is worth looking at clinically um but also you know just sort of the the lived experience piece of uh veterans saying you know i was drinking six days a week and now i'm gonna run club or i you know i'm doing a triathlon or i'm i went on a whatever the case may be, I took up fly fishing and now I got to wake up early and do that. Now I don't, um, it's super, super tangible. And it's something that we've seen have a huge impact on guys. So hopefully it'll become, uh, covered by the VA and, and others. I've had so many people on here, obviously I'm, I'm not a member of the military myself, but the VA experience has almost been identical for almost every warfight that's come on and it was always you know prescribed um psychiatric meds the talk therapy and then when you hear people talking about the actual you know the the annotated results of some of these meds psychiatric meds they're not very reliable at all they're not very effective at all and yet when you take a step back as a layman and go okay so you get some veterans together you get a pack back on their back maybe a bow or a gun in their hand again. They're a tribe. They have a sense of purpose. They're climbing. They're in the outdoors. Maybe they're camping. That's probably going to replicate somewhat the parts that they enjoyed in the military. For some groups of people, this is probably going to be very healing. That doesn't take a lot of you know um, imagination to see the parallel of why that would work. What has been the resistance to some of these I mean, I use the word alternative. I'd argue the drugs are alternative, and these are common sense. But but these modalities that weren't in the toolbox for so long through the VA. Not as much as you'd think. I mean, I um, we feel really blessed to, you know, we're a, we're a group that can go on Capitol Hill and walk, you know, down the aisle of uh, lawmaker offices and really you know, do we notice if the person's a Republican or a Democrat before the meeting? Of course we know, but, um, you know, we're not, we're one of the few groups that doesn't do all, all GOP meetings on one day and then all, uh, you know, meetings with Democrats the other day. It's, it's, it's well received. And I think both parties and, um, people, whether veterans or not, have some sort of aha moment or experience in their own life where they um, participated in some outdoor recreation and, and they were like, you know, I do, I, I do feel better. I do, um, 
I know what you mean, and um, we'd love to see it. VA healthcare and VA reliance on the private sector or the nonprofit sector or the education sector to deliver healthcare is something that has been um, not without fraud. Um, you look at the money that comes out of the GI Bill for education, you look at all the benefits programs that exist, there's bad actors in the world that know how to position themselves or create companies that will become recipients of this money where the, um, the veterans welfare is not the priority. It's sort of a convenient um, way to access funding. So if there is, if there is resistance, it's in, uh, you know, we don't really, we, we need to be convinced that the program will be uh, executed properly and not be subject to tons and tons of uh, thieves. You know, we, 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 we can't write a check to um, Joe Schmo's white-tailed deer outfitter that opened up yesterday. You know, we have to ensure credibility and understand that these veterans will receive um, not only not only the experience that they're paying for, but that it's quality and backed with um, real psychotherapy experts and to call something therapy and to call something care and, and, and whatnot is a, you know, you want to have a level of, of standard there. Um, so anyway, long-winded way of saying the how has been, um, there's been some questions and some pushback on the how. The efficacy and the, is it a, even a real thing? Very little. Um, very, very little pushback on that. You know, the other thing about that is it's occurring so much um, already in the gener you know, in the donor generosity space. It's like everything's already happening. It's just the wrong source of um, it's just the wrong source of funding. So you can I mean, we can already point to the hundreds of uh, organizations that are taking out thousands and thousands of Afghanistan, Iraq veterans. Um, and then collecting their own data, collecting their own testimonials, seeing lives transform from, you know, um, suicide risk to, you know, what you might consider healthy. And I mean, this is not a, some fringe, you know, Hey, this lab and way off in the mountains we've discovered, you know, it's not a, it's not unheard of at all. So, um, yeah, it really is just coming down to like the, you know, this is a pretty robust idea with a lot of players, a lot of um, different organizations that would carry out the care. Um, we need to make sure that it's not mishandled. So for people listening, where can they learn more about Vogue and where can they donate? Yeah, it's voag.org. And... Yeah, all the information's on there. We have a Instagram. I think it's Vogue underscore official on Instagram. 
but yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's been a privilege to be a part of it. It really has a really good team. And uh, the community of this community of people that are interested in taking veterans in the outdoors are really selfless, um, passionate, good people, almost um, exclusively. So it's been a lot of fun for me. It's been it's been good for my own experience. And um, that's awesome. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to throw some uh, closing questions at you before you go, if you've got time. Sure. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, uh, let me think. Um, what would I recommend? You know, I think for veteran transition, I've read when I was going through that experience that I talked about is uh, man's search for meaning. That's a really cliche book recommendation I think has helped, uh, you know, it's probably been recommended by thousands of podcast guests, which is pretty cliche, but um, yeah, it really helped me re uh, redesign a lot of the questions that I was asking myself when I transitioned and his experience. Um, I don't want to speak for your whole audience, but it generally speaking is more severe than mine or any of our own ever. Um, and so the way he's able to frame his outlook and his um, perspective, I mean, you, you get a real sense of like, man, if he can do it, I can do it. And it really, really helped me. Um, it really helped me reframe um the way I was sort of thinking about some things. So I would probably, uh, I think that's what I would recommend as a potential. People tend to compare trauma and downplay their own compared to person X. And obviously Victor Frankl was in Auschwitz. So pretty horrific. And even within Auschwitz, his experiences were horrendous. But the flip side of that conversation is, well, if you look at someone with comparatively worse trauma, if that's what you're buying into, then read what they're saying. Because what they're saying is they were able to get through that. So if they can get through the, what you believe is worse, then now it becomes a message of hope. Because your seemingly less worse trauma is, you know, surmountable because Viktor Frankl, Dr. Edith Eger, all these, you know, these people I've had on, on Ishmael Bay these true worst case scenarios, these incredible humans were able to grow from this trauma. So if they can, you can. So I think that becomes a message of hope rather than not validating your own trauma. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, I think the last thing you want to tell people dealing with depression or PTSD is like that there's a element of narcissism to it, but, um, I think that book helped me examine that, like how much of, you know, maybe part of this is just too much inward um, thinking, which I don't think is a bad thing, but outward thinking can certainly help you in like sort of looking at um, others and where maybe the point of all of it is the benefit that you're going to bring to someone else. Um, 
is was really helpful for me. I think you can really distract yourself in life and find happiness, meaning, purpose um, much more easily if you're focused externally and on others or other programs or other projects or other relationships. Um, and the long stints of inward can get kind of cynical and uh, multiply your um, at least for me, you know, when I felt the most, I've had the most depressive episodes of really when I had a lot of time to just think about myself really. And some phases of life, I'm really focused on um, what I'm doing and the net sort of the, the outcome of it is um, happiness really, I think, or, or lacking depression because I'm not really, um, I see myself as a, agent for something else and not so focused on, you know, I think if you sit around and think about like, if anything in your body's in pain and you just think about it long enough, you'll think like, yeah, you know, I think my back is a little tight, you know, and then you're like, God, damn, I have, I have a hurt back, but then it's, you know, you just, uh, distraction is helpful, I think. And that's how, yeah, the, that book really speaks to that. Well, I've heard this over and over again. Obviously, you've got to get through, especially if you're in crisis. I mean, that's not when you start a nonprofit, when you just, you know, the day after you had a gun in your hand. However, once people are able to navigate their own trauma, that selflessness, that purpose becomes as healing to the individual as it does to the people that they're helping as well. So it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. And I am a, uh, with Vogue and everything, I'm, a, I'm definitely a... Uh been subject to that and you'd be see you'd um you'd be surprised how many inquiries we get to help you know we get a almost as many inquiries as we get for i want to participate and i need help we get it maybe equal amount as i want to help other veterans um you know i want to be on the i want to sit on the providing side of the table um and that's great we love that and i think that that speaks to what you're saying is like, there's um, it's cathartic to, or it's healing for yourself to help others for sure. Absolutely. Well, what about, we talked about books. What about films and documentaries? Any of those that you love? Uh, so one thing we didn't talk about is like, I, uh, in order to sort of broaden my focus away from identifying as like an athlete, I've I, I've, I've tried to get really into writing and you and I were talking about your books. Um, and so, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the last two years, like trying to um, indulge in the cognitive areas of life that I enjoy music and writing and not, not. And so, um, you know, I saw, Today, I saw a, uh, last week, there's a short story by Hemingway called Big Two-Hearted River. And that's about a guy from comes home from World War One, and he goes to um, on a fishing trip by himself. And he sort of navigates his PTSD on this trip. Um, and it's, the town has changed since he left years ago. And he sort of talks about it, but it's not explicitly stated. It's not even explicitly stated that it's 
in post-World War One, but it's 100 years old this month. And I was like, golly, it's, it's amazing. Because um, it's a lot of Vogue's sort of um, mission and, and sort of core belief is this um, experience in nature that has healing effects from war. And uh, people should give that a read. It only takes about 25 minutes. It's a short story. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, there's a guy, Judd Kaufman. And I can uh, I can introduce you on email. And this is a guy who was also a SEAL. And then he was an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. Um, and speaks to his um he speaks to the identity piece really really well from being you know someone who was a seal to a ceo to a father um and the ability to not have any identity that's not wrapped up in anything except for you that your identity is your first and last name and avoiding um associating your identity too closely with um, any one thing like a job or a title or a athlete or whatever. And it's really powerful. It really has helped me. Um, and yeah, that's be, that'd be a good guest, I think for you. And I can introduce you. That would be amazing. Thank you. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Uh, ride my mountain bikes and run. I live, luckily, I live right by the trails here, and so it's pretty easy. Um, and I got I got pretty into mountain biking when I moved here, and so I'll ride three or four days a week. And I do some running um, and write, which is sort of a new new, um, new hobby for me. So, yeah, those two things. And then with writing, are we uh, expecting a book at some point? Uh, yeah, at some point, I'm, uh, I've been doing like articles and interviews, sort of short stories on um, Substack. I can send you the link. And then I th I'm hoping it sort of all um, comes together in, in a novel. Yeah, yeah, non or a fiction novel is what I'm is the end goal. Beautiful. All right. Well, then you said Vogue was V-O-A-G dot org. Are there any places on online or social media to find you specifically? Yeah, my um, Instagram is at bldavis3. And then my substack is thetransition.substack.com. Beautiful. Well, Ben, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation, a very unique perspective, because as you said, you know, you're not the one taking the vets out fishing or, or climbing, you're actually advocating them, which I just had a, a guest on Cole Lyle, who's doing something similar, just more from, from the overall uh, VA perspective, but um, you know, an equally important part of the conversation, because if we're not the conduit between you know, the lawmakers and the men and women in uniform, then we're missing this big piece. But to have this toolbox grow and grow and grow to find the right fit for each individual, you know, whether it's EMDR and psychedelics and, you know, rucking or whether it's, um, you know, the, the new calm that I just told you about a minute ago and, you know, equine therapy. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the uh, Behind Shield podcast today. Yeah. Thank you, James. I've learned a lot from your, uh, from you and your guests and it's, uh, it's a real pleasure and, 
I want to say what you're doing helps as well.